Welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today, we will be speaking with Dan Thompson, MD, MA, MCCM, Professor of Surgery, Anesthesiology, and Bioethics at Albany Medical College in Albany, New York. Our topic today is the costs and logistics of end-of-life care. Welcome, Dr. Thompson. Thank you. We've had a series of panel discussions and talks at this current SCCM conference about these topics of end-of-life care, costs, logistics, the communication process. And for me personally, it's an extremely important topic for us to be going over. I would like to ask Dr. Thompson to share with us a little bit of his own personal journey in getting to the point of becoming a bioethicist. And Dr. Thompson, maybe you could also share with us some of your philosophy about the way these discussions and decisions optimally go in the ICU. Sure. I was uh, in Pittsburgh for 22 years running an ICU. And the farther along I got, the more that I recognized that I didn't know enough about the ethics of particularly end-of-life care, but certainly other care. And I decided that I needed to learn some more. So I spent time at Duquesne University, which was fortunate. It was just across the street from the hospital that I worked in. And I got a master's degree in bioethics while I was there. And that certainly helped me understand things better. But it was part of a journey that had started before with a lot of reading. And and obviously when you're a, a graduate student, a lot more reading there. And it helped me because for quite a while I ran the ethics committee at Mercy Hospital. So I decided to move to Albany when I decided I wanted to do more ethics work. And it turned out that I found out that they were looking for somebody who had a physician who had some sort of expertise in not only their own field but bioethics and decided to drag my family from Pittsburgh to uh, Albany. That's great. So obviously you've put a lot of your own personal time and and your professional time into this topic. Um, Do you have any thoughts to share with us about how ideally you feel like these end-of-life decisions get made for patients, those who are incapacitated to make their own decisions? Well, I, th- I think generally, uh, well, well, hopefully things are a little better than they were when I was a fellow, and I certainly think that being trained at Pitt was a very good experience. I think that as a general rule, when you're a resident and you're a fellow, you are not entirely well-trained in part of the job that you're going to do, and that has to do with dealing with families and and dealing with a lot of ethical issues, particularly in the intensive care unit. The intensive care unit, when I was in Pittsburgh, the nurses said it was a place, someplace between life and death, and most of us are more interested or more familiar with the concept of keeping people alive it's our job, and less so in uh, recognizing that we can't keep everybody alive and perhaps shouldn't always try to do that. And I think one of our things that we think is really important is how not only we help bring people into life, keep them alive, but also how do we ease them when they're going to die 
how do we ease their dying process and making it comfortable for them and hopefully meet the goals that they have because most of us would like to have a, some sort of a comfortable death and and I think that's as much of our job as our job of trying to keep people alive. In your mind, who are the best decision makers for a critically ill patient? I think it's always best if it's somebody who was chosen by the uh, patient. And the sad state is that most of the time that's not being done. We certainly have advanced directives which are pointing the person and also explaining what you would like to have done. I certainly think that you should be trying to educate the person that you've picked out when you have picked that person in, out and to how it is that you want things to happen. And that's not just a matter of dying, but a matter of how that whole experience in the ICU goes. And sometimes having a, a document that lays some of that out is very helpful, and it certainly makes it easier for people who are... Uh, uh, physicians and nurses and other people who are dealing with them to have some understanding not only of what that person is that's going to make the decision but also what the patient wants to, to have as their experience at that time. But probably in, in all the most important thing is the picking somebody to be your proxy that will actually work for you and carry out the things that you would ask them to, uh, to do. Mm-hmm. So it's that that's usually the best way to do it frequently and probably in most legal jurisdictions that's usually a spouse if you have a spouse or a partner. depends on the state you are in. In some states they have equal rights. In some states they don't. All the more reason to pick that person out yourself and legally be a, be a legal surrogate. But it's usually that or an adult child, and the problem comes in when you have lots of adult children. I have nine siblings and four children, and certainly the surrogate, other than my wife, that I've chosen is actually my third eldest daughter because she's a social worker and she understands things that I think the other two children would have a hard time. With. So I think it's important to pick it out. But there is sort of a pick list. And we talked about the fuzzy list, which has a whole bunch of other things, including court-appointed guardians. That's, uh, that would be there. But most of the time, the court doesn't want to be involved only when there is just no other choice. In some states, the physicians are allowed to make those decisions. Or and there's a couple of States that allow social workers that have had a training program to make those decisions. I know that for my hospital, we actually are trying to come up with this concept of a group of patient advocates who can help make decisions for patients who, who don't have any family or significant others or friends who could act in that capacity. What is your experience with that concept? I've had more experience probably with general consent, and I, and I think that experience is primarily with a group in Pittsburgh that were a group of nuns who had expertise in that 
department and would actually agree to act as surrogates for consenting. Obviously, there was a little money that needed to exchange because there was expense, but for the most part, it was very reasonable, and they, they were quite experienced in doing that. Certainly, that issue in any institutions is, is a problem, and I think all institutions have to have some sort of an ethics committee, according to JCO regulations. So that process may be part of that, but some of that depends on what the expertise of the individual ethics committee is. In my institution, we have the advantage of having a bioethics institute that teaches graduate students, and there are six of us who do ethics consults. So the six of us are probably much more experienced in that than than you might find in the average hospital. But it's important that there there be some level of skill there to make that helpful. The other way to help with that sometimes is clergy can help sometimes out with those people. I mentioned the social workers in Florida and Indiana in particular have those kind of things. Most of the time it's again, dependent on where you are as to who can make those decisions, and sometimes the physicians can make those decisions, and frequently it's similar to the emergency consent where two physicians would agree that this is something that should be done that way. So each individual state is a little bit different. There's some commonality due due to some uh, universal-type laws that have been put together by the Uniform Commission. I wanted to ask about your opinions as a bioethicist about this. So it sounds like, legally speaking, it is entirely feasible in certain states to have physicians or advocacy groups in the hospital make decisions for the patient. At the same time, you mentioned earlier in this podcast that the best decision makers for a patient are the people who know that patient's wishes. And I wanted to hear your opinions about how you reconcile those two slightly different, not motivations, but two different ways of arriving at a decision for a patient who themselves is incapacitated to make that decision. Well, I think there's two ethical concepts that are important there. One is having to do with knowing the patient well and knowing directly from them what it is they would want you to do. That's one. The other one is you know the individual and uh, you sort of know how he thinks, but maybe that person has not exactly spoken to you about it, but because you know that individual and you know what's important to him, you know what their family is like, you know what their religious leanings are, if that's an appropriate thing. So your job in that case is not that you know what they want specifically, but you know who they are, and then you should speak for these people on the basis of your knowledge of that individual. And um, that's the best interest is the next one, which is you don't know the person, but the best interest for that person as part of a group of humanity would be to to do that. So, So there's sort of three that all blend together, but those can help you do that. Surrogates are supposed to act on the best interest of the patient. And the law in, in almost all states says that that's their job. I think most of us are afraid to remind 
surrogates sometimes that that's their job is the best interest of patients and doing what the patient would want you to do and not necessarily what they want to do. And sometimes we don't ask. Sometimes we just listen. I think sometimes we're afraid to remember that's part of our job in almost every state to do that. And sometimes we don't give enough support to the people who have to make the decisions. That's right. I wanted to ask you about that. What are the emotional ramifications for the surrogate making such a decision? I could probably give you a couple of instances I think are interesting. I certainly had a had a wife of a um, patient when I was in Pittsburgh who knew exactly what her husband wanted to do, which was he wanted not to have further treatment. He wanted to be kept comfortable and be allowed to die. And her children didn't agree with that. So she was torn between doing what was right with her husband that she had lived with for 50 years and doing what was her family thought was right, who she was going to live, have to live with after he was gone. And I think you need to be able to support those people and work with them. And sometimes it's a matter of working with the rest of the family, but certainly working with those people because you know when it's all over, they're going to be alone. And so it's very, very important to, to work with that. On the other hand, one of the examples that was brought up yesterday in the session had to do with a individual who would lose consciousness periodically and was very clear about what his wishes were whenever he would lose consciousness, his mother would go off in a different direction than what he wanted. And I think in those situations it's very hard to to redirect that, but that's part of our job, that we have to redirect that and make sure that that individual knows that their job is not what they want, their job is what the individual would want. And you do have some in, you do have some information what that person wanted. And that didn't change. In this case, it happened over and over, so that would even reinforce it even more. Can you, as the healthcare professional, get a surrogate replaced if you feel like they're actually not acting in the patient's you know, best wishes or best interests? I would say in a good share of the states you can. I would also argue that that's very difficult for any of us to do. But I think if we understand what the job is for that surrogate to do and they're not doing that, then I think then one th- has to think about that is that the person who should be doing the surrogate's job. And the law does in some states allow the physician to fire the surrogate. I think most of us would be uncomfortable with that. That may be the time that you want to get your hospital lawyer involved just to make sure that your understanding of the law is correct. And also, it has always has some ramifications for the institution we work at. But I think in some cases you need... I think it's always better not to have a confrontation, but sometimes you need to moderate the confrontation and maybe perhaps remind people that's what their job is and that's what the law allows them to do. And sometimes it takes a little more time. In terms of what the advanced directive says versus what the surrogate's opinion is, 
I, I wanted to get some clarification from you for our audience because I think we all tend to want to have an advanced directive, but sometimes it actually isn't that informative, is it? Right. I think a lot of it depends on how it's written, and I think there's two ways it's likely to be done. One is having a lawyer work with you and, and uh, write an advanced directive. And another is uh, using forms. There are forms on the Internet that can be used. Just as there are better and worse advanced directives written by lawyers, there's better and worse ones written by forms. And so I think it's really important that you pick out the form and or the lawyer very, very well. I'll give you, I'll give you a personal example. My father-in-law, before he died, decided he needed to write an advanced directive. So I went to his lawyer. They were working on his will. Most lawyers, in my experience, uh, when you write a will, they also want to write an advanced directive. And that's a good idea. But part of it depends on how that's going to be written. So my father-in-law came over after it had been written, and he had me read it. And he said, what do you think? And I said to him, I said, this is what it says to me. Is this what you meant? And he said, no. And I said, well, what you need to do is you need to work with him, and you need to get it so it says what you want to say to me as your physician. And he said, okay. So he went, came back, brought it to me. I said, this is what it says. Is that what you want? He said, no. I said, okay. So we sat down and talked about what the point of the advanced directive was, which was to give communication to the person who was caring for them. And I said, you need to tell that person what it is that you want them to do, along with saying that there's somebody who will help, help do that. And so we spent about an hour talking about that. And he went home. And he was an old-fashioned guy who didn't know how to use a computer, but he could hunt and peck on a, on a uh, uh, typewriter. And he wrote an advance directive. And he brought it over, and I said, this is what it says. Is that what you meant to say? He said, yes. I said, take it back to your lawyer and tell him that if he changes anything that doesn't need to be changed, you'll fire him. Came back with the advance directive. That was perfect. He did change a few things, but for the most part, it said exactly what Bill wanted it to say. So that's, a, that's an important, it was a really important thing. I certainly have seen wonderful advanced directives written by lawyers, so it's not that they can't write them, but not everybody has those skills. And, and going to the opposite side with the forms, you need to be careful of those. I have, my wife and I happen to use the Allegheny County Medical Society and um, Bar Association forms from Pittsburgh, even though I don't live in Pittsburgh. I guess I'm biased because I helped write those with 14 other people, but I still think that's one of the best forms that you can get. One of the things that it does have in it that I think is important is it gives you a choice about whether your surrogate proxy needs to follow what you wrote. Okay, and most of them don't say that. They may, though, and my wife's and mine is, is different. 
there's a box to check that says my surrogate has to follow what I say in, in here and mine is checked. And my wife, it's not checked. And she knows that it's different. So it's a matter of getting it to say what you're trying to say to the person who's your health care giver. I think that's the important thing. It's a communication. The book that I used primarily in my talk was Alan Mazel's book, and I know Alan very well. Alan says you don't need an, an advanced directive. You need a designation of a proxy. He said that person should know what to do, and you don't need the other half of it. My experience, I think it's good to have both of them, but to a certain extent I agree with them. You need to pick that person out well. You need to train them and let them know what it is so that they can truly act in your best behalf. And I think that's the important, the important thing. So having the documents are, are helpful. They're not the end-all to end-all. Your surrogate or your proxy is going to have times when it doesn't fit, you have to trust them to use their best judgment to do that. And I think we as physicians and healthcare givers need to support those people. And I think one of the ways that we can look at those is most advanced directives are if-then statements. It says, if this happens, then do this. Well, one of the problems I find sometime or have found in my career is somebody comes in and their advanced directive says um, don't resuscitate me if I have a cardiac arrest and immediately everybody said oh this person's a DNR well they're a DNR if they've got a terminally ill condition if they're they're never ever going to be awake again in their life and that's not the same thing so you need to know exactly what it says but I always tell people there are always end statements and it's there's a rare case where there isn't, but it's almost always that. And the law sometimes only allows you those things that are, you know, that you're permanently vegetative. Some of that varies from state to state. And, uh, and or you're terminally ill, and then the discussion is what is terminally ill. That varies from state to state, too, but generally it's somebody who's going to die within the next six months. But sometimes it may be appropriate to resuscitate somebody in that, in that situation. So it's not totally something you can do without any thought. You have to think about what it is, and you have to understand what the document says. Well, that sounds like a very good summary of our entire conversation. I think that that's a great take-home message for our listeners, and I'll use that as our conclusion for this edition of the iCritical Care podcast. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Ludwig Lin. Gain implementation strategies for a more effective and lasting application of the pain, agitation, and delirium PAD guidelines at the ICU Liberation and Animation Conference to be held September 9th and 10th, 2015 at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee, USA. This conference is held in partnership with SCCM and Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Visit www.sccm.org slash ICU Liberation to register. Ludwig Lynn, M.D. is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Summit Altibates Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California 
and is a consulting professor at Stanford University, where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lin did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient family communication as well as education. Being a SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lin of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.